privilege to give back to God as we're just stewards of His. Let's join me in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that, for whatever reason, an omnipotent God who can just speak and create out of nothing lets us give back to His work. We thank you for that privilege, Lord, and what a privilege it is. We pray that you'll take the money this morning, use it for your glory. And for your purposes, Lord, in Jesus' name we ask that. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Amen. Amen, sister. I sure am glad to have men in our church like Brother Ted and like Brother... What is your name, Phil? <laughs> uh, I'm so serious about that. Now, <clears throat> our brother, in leading the song service, he, he knows more about music than you think he does. He started off with the low songs. That's kind of to get you built up a little bit. And wound up with the highest song in the book. Uh, I, I noticed several of you stood up on your tiptoes when you got down to the chorus there. I believe Brother uh, Pooh, I think you, you stood up on your toes when you were singing but what's the message of the highest song in there? It is, he lives. He lives within my heart. We're so glad to have you here today. It's a joy to be in the house of the Lord for many reasons. First of all, for he is present and he's promised to be present when his people assemble in his name. But we thank thee that we have the Bible the word of God that liveth and abideth forever. <clears throat> For many years, as far back as I can remember, the Bible has always been the bestseller. More Bibles are sold than any other book in the United States. And yet, isn't it strange, almost coincidental that the most neglected book in all the Bible, in all the world, is the Bible. I mean, many, many churches and many pastors have contributed to this, I'm afraid, by getting away from the Scripture and teaching Scripture to uh, teaching other things. 
And uh, other things are important depending on what they are, but nothing is more important than the Word of God that liveth and abideth forever. We have been in the Gospel of Jonah for several weeks now in a series of studies. And this morning we come to series number eight, and I ask you to turn to the book of Jonah, chapter three, verses one through ten. The book of Jonah, chapter number three, verses one through ten. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed the fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. The word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them and he did it not. What have we seen thus far in our exciting study of the book of Jonah? In chapter number one, we saw man running from God. Jonah specifically running from God, trying to get away from the Lord. We notice that in chapter 1, verse 3, and in verse number 10. Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And in verse number 10, Then were the men exceedingly afraid and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Chapter 1 is devoted with this concept that man has a basic nature 
not to run to God, but to run away from God and to get away from God. In chapter number two, we talked to you about man running to the Lord. Little different tempo in chapter two from chapter one. In chapter two, verse one, then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. And verse two, and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me out of the belly of hell, cried I, and thou heardest my voice. And in verse number seven, when my soul fainted within me, Jonah still speaking, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple, man running to God. If man ever starts running in the right direction, God will be the reason for it. God will always be the cause behind it. Uh, And then chapter number three, we see man running with God. In that third chapter, again, verses two and three, God said to Jonah, Arise, go into Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. God is a God of mercy. He dispenses mercy As he pleases. Sometimes we do not understand why God has mercy on what he has mercy on. But God knows what he's doing and God is the author of it and God is the dispenser of mercy. Remember last Sunday I gave you this this verse in Romans chapter 9 verse 15. The Lord on one occasion said to the man Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion, on whom I will have compassion. Now, God doesn't always show mercy, and he doesn't always show compassion. God showed no mercy on Sodom and Gomorrah. They were a wicked people, some of the most wicked people on the face of the earth at that time, and God not showing mercy on those folk. As a matter of fact, he opened up heaven and caused it to rain fire and brimstone on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah until all the inhabitants were burned up and their ashes emptied into the Dead Sea. God had no mercy on them. Can you imagine what it must have been like that particular day instead of the sun shining Balls of fire begin to fall from heaven and the people could not escape. They couldn't get away from it and they themselves were being burned up and their relatives and their children being burned to a cinder because God said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And sometimes God shows mercy, does he not? God showed mercy on the Ninevites. They too were a wicked people. They're described being a wicked city. 
They were wicked people who deserved no mercy, yet it pleased God to show mercy. Well, and I've said this so many times before, first time I ever heard it. Uh, I do not remember who said it, but they were right on target when they said Jonah was a graduate of Whale University. I mean, when you read the book, you find that out. Jonah went through Whale University. He graduated with flying colors. He learned more in three days than most preachers learn in a lifetime of formal education. Now, here are some of the things which Jonah learned in the belly of that fish and also in going down to the bottoms of the mountains in that great storm of sea. He learned that it is impossible to escape from God. He learned that by experience. It is impossible to escape from God. God never lost sight of Jonah, whether he was in the boat, whether he was in the storm, whether he was in the sea, whether he was in the fish, or even in the belly of hell, God never lost sight of him. There's a precious verse in Proverbs 15, 3 that says the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the good and the bad. And my dear friends, God never has had a problem with cataracts. God knows and God sees and God is aware of his creation, whether saved or unsaved. In Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12, David raised the question about the knowledge of God concerning his whereabouts. Whether shall I flee from thy spirit? Whether shall I go from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me, yea, darkness hideth not from thee. But the night shineth as the day, the darkness and the light are both alike to God, to him. He learned that it's impossible to escape from God. Well, now, if we know that and we've heard it over and over again, why do we still try to do it? Try to maybe figure a place where I can go where God won't see me doing what I want to do. But we cannot do that. Second of all, he learned that God means what he says. I take great delight in this statement and I make it so many, many times and have made it over and over and over again in my ministry. If you want to know what God says, read the Bible. It says what it means and it means exactly what it says. God is speaking through his word even today through the Bible that we have God means what he says. Numbers 23 verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken 
and shall he not make it good? God always supports what he says with his word. That's the authority of the scripture. Another thing that Jonah learned is that God chastens his disobedient children. We need to be reminded of that every once in a while. We're in this day, my dear friends, that many congregations are coming down with sugar diabetes because that's the only gospel they hear. That God just so good, he, he's not going to do this and he's not going to. You better watch out, my dear friend. Jonah learned that God chastens his disobedient children. There's a verse or two in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. My son... Despise not there the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. One way of the many ways you can know whether you're a son of God or not is that when you bow against him and do things displeasing to him, he will take you to the woodshed. And you say, well, he's never taken me to the woodshed. That's because you don't belong to him. If you belong to him, get ready for it. That's a promise he gives to us. Ask Jonah. He found out it just didn't work trying to run from God. Another thing Jonah learned is God is no respecter of persons in salvation. He does not respect color. He does not respect race. He does not respect background or our ancestry or our standing. God does not respect white people above black people or nor does he respect black people above white people. God cannot be moved. His emotions cannot be moved by what man is and by what man does. He is no respecter of persons in salvation. In Romans chapter 2 verses 10 and 11. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Well, the Jews thought the Gentiles were a bunch of dogs. There is no respecter of persons with God. Jonah thought salvation was only for the Jews. That was one of his theological hang-ups. He really believed that God just going to save Jews and nobody else and let the rest of the world go to hell. And finally, he understood and learned that salvation is of God alone. In chapter 2, verse number 9, I will sacrifice unto thee with a voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that which I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And I suppose this has been acclaimed as the Baptist theme verse. The Camelites have... Acts 2.38. Well, the Baptists come along with Ephesians 2.8 through 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. Man does not cooperate with God in salvation. 
for the earlier part of my ministry before I knew the blessed truth of the grace of God. I took great delight in telling the congregation at the end of the service, we called it then the invitation. In other words, you can't be saved till the preacher gives the invitation. You've got to wait for that. And then I would say something like this. Uh, God has already taken the first step. Now, if you'll take the second step, I never told them that's a hooker in it. At, get, at that second step, you, you'll spend the rest of your life trying to take a second step. God does not cooperate with man in salvation. It is not God plus man's free will. Now, if that offends you a little bit, don't leave the service. You're going to get more offended before it's over with. The Lord's not impressed with your free will. The main reason is it's not free. You can only do what your nature allows you to do. Man does not cooperate. All right, let's go with point number one. God did not give up Jonah. God did not give up on Jonah. In verse number one, chapter three, the word of the Lord came unto Jonah. Underscore that. The second time. Aren't you glad for the second time? And for the third time? And for the fourth time? And for the fifth time. I learned something this week about an attribute I have never mentioned before. I like to talk about the attributes of God. God is love. God is truth. God is grace. And we always like to include some things that God cannot do. God cannot lie. Well, I've got a new one for you. God cannot surrender. God cannot Surrender. And if God ever gives up on you, it is not because you were bigger than he was. It is because it pleased him to do what he did. God never surrenders his will or his purpose. Thank God for the mercy of the second time. Thank God he does not drop us when we fail. But rather he comes back time after time again. God often reprobates the wicked. That word reprobate means to abandon beyond salvation. It means that it pleases God sometimes to take an individual on planet earth and put him beyond salvation. He cannot be saved because he's been reprobated by God. God often reprobates the wicked. Now, if that's a little tough for you, give me a few minutes. In the book of Hosea, chapter 4, verse 17, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Stop singing 15 stanzas of just as I am, and maybe he'll come on the 17th one. Huh? Ephraim is joined to idol. Let him alone. Let him alone. 
Warren Wiersbe, whom I think is a pretty good Bible teacher, says the greatest judgment God can inflict on us is to let us have our way. Romans 1, 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. And for the first time, it happened this week in my Bible study as I was reading that verse the little word convenient jumped out at me to do those things which are not convenient. I thought I would improve my Bible knowledge a little bit by looking into the concordance and finding out what the Hebrew or the Greek word for this word translated convenient is. And I found it. And did you know what? It's only three letters long. F. I-T, fit. It's not fit. People are doing things today that are not fit. God gave them over to do things that are not fit. God often reprobates the wicked. Now, God never turns loose of his children. God never relinquishes his hold on those that belong to him. In Psalm 37, verses 23 through 24 and verse 28, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And he delighteth in his way. And though he fall. And my friend, sometimes we will. I'm not saying that it's not always going to be that way, but sometimes it is that way. We do take a tumble. We do fall. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. For the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. For the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints They are preserved forever. Hot diggity dog. Preserved for how long, Brother Cozart? Until the free will kicks in. No, no, no. How long? Forever. How beautiful the mercy of God the second time. May before I leave that thought, pass along one other emphasis here. Has there been a time lately when God had to come to you the second time? My daddy would say to me, Dan, <clears throat> you cut the grass today. And I'd get so tied up with so many things I wanted to do, I didn't get it done. And when he came from work, he said, what did I tell you, boy? I said, well, you you told me to to cut the grass. He said, this is the second time. That's that's my patient in right there, the second time. 
Has there been a time rather recently that God had to come to you a second time and say, listen, no more. Stop it. Two of my favorite words my mama spoke to me when we were in preaching. She always made me sit right by her side and she would say, stop it. She would take these two fingers right here, bend them, get a hold of my, I wore short pants to church, get a hold of my leg, and when she get a good grip on it, she'd turn it. Stop it. God never turns loose of his children. They're preserved forever. Now let's look at Jonah's sermon to the Ninevites in chapter number 3, verses 2 and 4. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. And verse 4 says, And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It was God's message through Jonah. He told Jonah to preach the preaching that I bid thee. There is a great difference between preaching and teaching. I believe that God not only calls preachers, but he also calls teachers as well. And they'll never be at each other's throat if they're preaching the word of God. They'll always be in perfect agreement on that, whether teaching it or preaching it. But my dear friends, there is a strength there is a, there's an unseen power in preaching sometimes that you do not feel the force of in teaching. There's a need for teaching. <clears throat> this is the message of God through Jonah, the preaching that I bid thee. Preachers are not called upon by God to preach what they think or like, but rather what the Word of God says. There's a sad deficiency today of preaching from God's Word. Too many preachers want to build mega churches and make the people feel good. And their brains have been replaced with this psychological thought. You give them what they want and they'll come back next Sunday. Lord, have mercy. It is not our purpose in this church, nor has it ever been our purpose, to try to make you feel good. Nor is it our whole purpose to make you feel bad all the time. Jonah's message was a message of judgment and repentance. In Jonah 1-2, these words, Their wickedness has come up before me, said the Lord. Evangelism does not begin with smiles and love. Let me say that again. Evangelism does not begin with smiles and love. It begins with God's holy law. 
and what and how man has lived his life to desecrate the holy law of God and how man has broken the law of God. It's judgment. And most men don't care for this kind of preaching. He said, well, would you like to prove that? I'm glad you requested it. Brother Amos was a herdsman of sycamore fruit. And I'm not quite sure I understand what sycamore fruit is, but that's what he was. He took it up after his daddy, and God called him to preach. But it wasn't enough that he was a minister or a preacher to the southern tribe of Israel or Judah. God said, I want you to go up to Israel and preach the message to them. And Jonah was a misfit in the sense, my dear friends, that the people up in Israel did not like his message. Amos walked into the court of the Israelites and said, you need to prepare to meet God. And the high priest likely had a fit. He said, where'd you come from? You didn't go to any of our schools and preach like that. He said, well, God called me. I, I was gathering sycamore fruit and God called me and told me to come up here and tell you to prepare to meet God. And the high priest said, why don't you go back home? As like the little lady, I told you about her in our church. Well, she wasn't little. She was a big, fat woman. Oh, she's a big one. And told me to go back to North Carolina, the Red Hills of North Carolina. Nobody needs that kind of preaching here. Go, go. <clears throat> they didn't like it, tried to run him off. Jeremiah made this statement as soon as God called him to preach. Return to God, you backsliders. Now, I learned a long time ago, there's some things you don't call Baptists. You don't call them backsliders. They don't like that term, hypocrites. And they didn't like it when Jeremiah called them that. That's what you call preaching. John the Baptist came on the scene and he had a whole congregation of Pharisees, and he said to them, Repent, you rattlesnakes. Call them a bunch of snakes. Hmm. Wouldn't go too well today, would it? Stephen, before they stoned him to death, called his congregation, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. And they hated it so much, they began to stone him to death. And Simon Peter talked to the Israelites and said, you crucified the Prince of Glory. And they didn't like that. Jonah's sermon to the Ninevites was a message of judgment. Chastisement brought about a change in Brother Jonah. Look at verse 3. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh. Take a moment. This will bless your heart. Compare Jonah 1.3 with Jonah 3.3. 3. In Jonah 1.3, Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah 3.3, 3, so Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh. He did just the opposite now. Changed his mind a little bit. It brought about a change in his life. When God told him what to do. I'll not. I'll, I'll, I'll try not to go.
too far in this direction. Number one, because it'll make you mad if I do. <clears throat> but if, if you have a child, first of all, thank the Lord you do. Children are a blessing from God. But they can be an eternal curse if they're not harnessed. If you say, well, I, I never want to tell him what to do or where to go, you, you, that's a real in-service, my dear friend. Chastisement will straighten up a child's behavior when all else fails. And that's going to get a little quiet, okay? The first time when God called Jonah, he rebelled and went his own way. Now, Jonah all of a sudden is quite willing to do what God wants. He began to manifest a different spirit because God chastised him. He exhibited a spirit of promptness. Notice Jonah did not wait around after that second call came. As soon as God spoke, he acted. He went to Nineveh. He didn't wait around until he recovered from his incident with the fish. We all have a tendency to be prompt with what we want to do, but often we're not prompted with God. We put God off. God gave Jonah no time for medical recovery he said, now, Jonah, bless your heart, son. You've been through, you have really been through some hard times. Done that fish's belly for three days and three nights. And, and I, I'm going to give you a little rest before I tell you what I want to know. God said, this is what you need to do, what I told you the first time. Get after it. And he did what God told him to do. A spirit of promptness. This accounts. You, you can tell sometimes when teaching teaching becomes preaching. It's when the amen starts turning out omis. That, that particular point there. This accounts for tardiness and absenteeism in God's house today. We're not prompt to do what God says to do. We'd rather do what we have planned to do. And that takes precedence over what God wants us to do. And this is one of the prime reasons why the churches, many churches today, like our church, we have so many absentees continually and we have a tardiness problem. Well, if God wants you here and God saved you so you could be here, that ought to be priority for you. If nothing else today, we're going to get up and do it for God. It's God's day. My wife and I got in our car this morning. Of course, I usually get up a little early. It's difficult for me to stay in bed past 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, 4 o'clock, is it? There are too many things you miss after 4 a.m. in the morning. But we've cranked my car up, and thank the Lord it cranked this morning, and we backed out in our driveway. I said, all right, infidels, we're going to church. You know why I said that? Because infidels don't go to church. Oh, you said, Brother Kozar, that's an unfair statement. No, that's a true statement. That's one of those ouch statements. 
he not only exhibited a spirit of promptness, but he exhibited a spirit of sacrifice. God said, I want you to go to Nineveh. Nineveh. Nineveh was some five to six hundred miles from Jonah's home, and he had to walk all the way. And he offered no excuses. He exhibited a spirit of unselfishness. Jonah was willing to drop all of his plans and desires to do what God wanted. Matthew 16, 24, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Number four, Nineveh was a great city in need of great mercy. A great city that needed great mercy. You read Jonah 1, 2 and find out Nineveh was a great city in sin. A great city in sin. That's where you went to have a good time. A great city in sin. Jonah 3, verses 3 through 4 says that Nineveh was a great city in size. Look at verses 3 and 4. Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Three days' journey in size. In size somewhere in the vicinity of 60 to 80 miles long, the outskirts of Nineveh before you ever got downtown Nineveh. There have been some to estimate it was a city of 80 to 100 miles in circumference. We have a loop that goes around Tyler and another loop that goes around that loop. Tyler has become a pretty good-sized city. It takes a pretty good time to walk around it or run around it or ride, drive around it. But here was a city of some 80 to 100 miles in circumference. It was the largest city in the world at that time. It was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Jonah walked for a whole day to get from the city limits to the downtown area, probably 20 miles why? Because that's where he's going to preach to the leaders of the city. And the population was sizable. We're going to jump ahead one verse and we'll come back to it when we get there next Sunday. In chapter 4, verse number 11. And should not I spare Nineveh that great city wherein are more than six score thousand persons and cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand? and also much cattle. 120,000 of them may be making up the population of more than a million total population in Nineveh. It was a big city, a sinful city. The response of the Ninevites to Jonah's preaching. Look at verse number 7. They began to fast. Now, there's a bad thing about fasting, and there's a good thing about fasting. You don't fast to advertise it. 
You don't fast so that people say, boy, you've really been fasting. I mean, you've been dropping that weight, you know. And he's, well, I, it's because I love the Lord. That's the reason I do it. I love to eat this like anybody else. No, that's the way the Pharisees did it. But they began to fast. Verse number 7 says, And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king, and his nobles saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. A moment ago when I said Jonah 4.11, notice it concludes with these words, And also much cattle. He's describing what the population of the city is, and he said, don't forget the cows. Much cattle. Did you know that these cattle had a sense of impending doom? Do you believe that God has animals that has more sense to get in out of the rain than human beings? Do you realize that though the weather forecaster says you're going to have hot weather, no rain for 20 more days, that if there's rain in the air, an animal will get hold of it before you do. And even the cattle participated in the fast. If you don't believe that, read verses 7 and verse 8 of chapter 3. Verse 8, let man and beast and beast and beast and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. They began to fast. They humbled themselves. They covered with sackcloth. Much like our Washington politicians do today. <laughs> they just love the Lord so much. They prayed. They cried mightily unto God. And then they repented. Turn everyone. They turned everyone from his evil way. Now, I've deliberately saved a little bit of time to share something with you I did not already know. And there are a lot of things I don't know. And I rejoice when I can find out about them. Take a moment to turn to 2 Chronicles 7.14. That's in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. You probably, if you read your Bible, recognize that location of Scripture is one that you are familiar with. Because how many times have we we've heard this uh, and we've, uh, we've uh, quoted it? Second Corinthians, Chronicles, I'm sorry. Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land, period. Boy, I memorized that. Isn't that good? Boy, I like to hear that quoted. That's not all of it. And that's what the Lord impressed me with this week. That sometimes we get hold of one verse like that and we just milk it to death and forget about there were some verses that came before it and after it we omitted. 
and I've asked you, and I don't know whether you're going to do it or not, you need to turn to Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Go back, if you would, please, to verse number 12. The Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to sac- for myself for an house of sacrifice. The context has to do with the church with the house of God. If I shut up heaven, that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among the people, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. Verse 15, Now, now mine eyes shall be opened If you'll do that, my eyes, God says my eyes shall be opened and my ears shall attend to your prayer. If you'll do this, that is made, where was it made? In this place. It happened in the temple, in the house of God. I'm not through with it. Verse 16, for now have I chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever. And mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. And as for thee, if thou wilt walk before me, as David thy father walked, and do according to all that I have commanded thee, and shall observe my statutes and my judgments, then will I establish the throne of my kingdom, according as I have covenanted with David thy father, saying, There shall not fall thee a man to be a ruler in Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and shall go and serve other gods and worship them, if you do that, guess what? Then will I pluck them up by the roots out of the land which I have given them, and this house which I have sanctified for my name will I cast out of my sight and will make it to be a proverb and a byword among all nations. And this house, which is high, God calls it a high house because it had all the costumes and all the rituals involved in it. And this house, which is high, shall be an astonishment to every one that passeth by it so that he shall say, Why hath the Lord done this unto the land and unto this? Why has God done this to the house? And it'll be answered because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them forth out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore hath he brought all this evil upon them them and in that margin of my Bible I have written a question is there any hope for the United States of America we've worshipped other gods we're doing things today that would make the devil blush we're changing humanity into humans, inhuman behavior. 
Is there any hope? That's the reason I started preaching a long time ago. You won't find the United States of America in Bible prophecy. It ain't there. Other foreign countries are, but not America. If something doesn't happen soon, and I'm not a date setter, but if something doesn't happen real soon to slow the progress downward that we're taking as a nation, you can write it off. That's all there is. How I got over there, I don't know. <laughs> Nineveh had no guarantee that God would hear. Look quickly at verse 9, chapter 3 of the book of Jonah. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? They had not one ounce of proof that God would even pay any attention to them. They were an enemy nation. They said, but you know what? We're going to die anyway. And let's please just throw our all on the Lord. And it may be that God will hear. It's quite possible they had heard about the incident with Jonah. I don't know whether they had or not. But if God forgave Jonah, maybe he might just forgive them. It mattered not. They would trust the Lord anyway. Isn't that what the Hebrew children said when Nebuchadnezzar got ready to throw them in the fire because they were praying to the wrong God? They were praying to the right God, but Nebuchadnezzar said, no, you pray to the God I tell you to pray to. And because they wouldn't do it, he's going to throw them in the fire. And he did, and God was in that fire with them and brought them out to salvation. That's good. Maybe God won't hear. Maybe God will hear. Maybe God will hear. And Nineveh is spared. In verse number 10, God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. God does not repent. God never repents as man repents. Man repents of his sins. God never repents of his sins because God doesn't have any sins of which to repent. God sometimes goes a different direction. And sometimes we think we know the directions of God so much we know exactly what he's going to do. Then he'll do something we never even heard of before. God repented. God went a different direction. And he did so when he knew what he would do before he ever called Jonah to preach. It would have been a foolish for Nineveh to say, well, if God's going to save us, he will. Then nothing we can do about it. No, that's sheer fatalism. We're not proposing that at all. Judgment is averted only through the repentance of people. When people get serious with God, God gets serious with people. And it's not a hopeless case. It is a case of stubbornness and selfishness. Man, if he refuses to repent, he'll die. Luke 13, 3, you must repent or perish. We'll devote our ninth and final study, which will be chapter 4, next Sunday, 
on the displeasure of Jonah. I hope you'll be with us for that. Let's stand, please, for prayer.